All right, Isaiah, not Isaiah. Boy, I'm jumping way ahead. <laughs> Genesis chapter 43. If you weren't here last week, you thought, man, you covered a lot. Isaiah, whew. <laughs> I know I talk fast, but that'd be a miracle. Genesis 43 is where we pick back up together. We've been watching in this section sort of the gradual revelation of of Joseph to his brothers. Uh, remember we saw uh, as we kind of passed through chapter 42 in the midst of this uh, famine that had spread throughout all the lands uh, that Jacob, uh, Joseph's father, remember, and the family back in Canaan, the famine was severe in that area as well. And Jacob said to his sons, basically um, aware that there was grain in Egypt uh, because of the administration, remember, of Joseph, who had been exalted to be the prime minister of sorts, the governor over Egypt, and had stored up uh, grain during the seven years of prosperity. Uh, Now this famine continuing to be severe across all the land. Jacob saw there was grain in Egypt and said to his sons, look, why are you staring at one another? Uh, It's obvious there's a need for provision (laughs) We're starving and uh, something needs to be done and to stand around and to watch things get more and more difficult and our resources deplete and realizing there is the solution to our problem and there is the source of provision whereby we need to go obtain uh, time to stop staring at one another and uh, get out there and do it. Go do what needs to be done to make sure that we can get grain for our family. So. Uh, Again, the ten brothers, remember, then took a trip to Egypt. Uh, Benjamin, the youngest brother, was held back because Jacob could not bear the thought of something happening to his youngest son and the other only son that he had from his favored wife, Rachel. They went to Egypt, we saw, and again, Joseph, upon seeing them, it had been 20 years since he had seen his brothers. Again, we can only imagine the emotions, the thoughts, the shock waves that must have run through him as he saw his brothers uh, walk into where he was and request to buy grain. They didn't recognize him because it had been 20 years. He's got Egyptian garb. He's dressed as an Egyptian. Uh, He's no longer 17. He's now 37 years old. Uh, And they don't recognize him. He's speaking through an interpreter. He's not speaking Hebrew or Chaldean. He's speaking the Egyptian language uh, through an interpreter to them. Uh, And Joseph, recognizing them, but they not recognize him, remember, initially, he, he plays the part of acting like he's just some ruler in Egypt. He's kind of harsh with them. He's difficult. He says, you're just spies. You're here to spy out the land. Again, he wants to see where their heart conditions are at. Uh, He accuses them of being spies and basically asks them some questions. When they acknowledge they have a father and a younger brother, uh, he says, well, look, here's what we're going to do. You're all going to stay in prison until your younger brother comes here to prove that you are not spies and that you're not telling lies. Look, we're honest men. We're honest men. He puts them in prison for three days and he lets them out and he says, here's what we'll do. One of you will remain here with me. We know Simeon is who ends up remaining. And he says, the rest of you go back home and get your younger brother and bring him back here to prove that you're honest men and that you're not spies and to validate uh, that you are someone who would be worthwhile to sell grain to and do business with. And the brothers then depart, going back to their father, Simeon left behind in custody in prison. 
They go back and tell Jacob, their father, look, uh, such and so forth happened, and this is what this man said to us. And he said, he won't even look at us or talk to us unless we bring Benjamin back. To which Jacob says, absolutely not. Why would you tell him you have a younger brother and so on and so forth? And Jacob just digs his heels in, no way. I've already lost Joseph. Now I've lost Simeon. There is no way that you are taking my baby boy Benjamin back there and I could possibly lose him as well. And he just digs his heels in and kind of resists. But ultimately, time passes, the famine gets more severe, and circumstances force Jacob to do something that Jacob did not want to do. And sometimes God works like that with us. Sometimes we may dig our heels in and say, no way, I'm not doing that. That's out of my comfort zone. Uh, that's not what I prefer. You know, That may involve some risk. And sometimes God just allows circumstances and situations to dictate ultimately what his sovereign and ultimate plan is. And things got difficult enough to where eventually we saw in chapter 43, verse 1, the famine became so severe that Jacob said, hey, what are you doing? You, you, need, to, you need to go back. And, look, we can't go back without Benjamin. He said he will not even talk to us unless we bring Benjamin back to where ultimately Jacob was forced, contrary to what his preference was and his feelings and his thoughts were, to say, you know what? I don't have any other ultimatum. Go, may God be with you. Take double money with you in your sacks and some other supplies as well to hopefully make restitution. Because remember, when they came back from Egypt, if I'm backtracking here a little, when they came back from Egypt, you remember, as they came back, they found all their money was put back in their sacks. And they're thinking, oh my goodness, not only are we going to go back there, but we're going to go back there. He already thought that we were spies. Now he thinks that we're thieves because, remember, all their money to pay for their grain was back in their sacks even though they went home with grain. Now he's going to think that we somehow did a faulty business transaction. So Jacob says, bring double money, bring your brother Benjamin, bring additional supplies, and go back. May God be with you. We left off there at the end of verse 13 and 14, take your brother also, arise, go back to the man, and may God Almighty give you mercy before that man, that he may release your brother, that is Simeon, and Benjamin, and if I'm bereaved, he says, I am bereaved. In other words, you're just kind of submitting to the sovereignty of God, just saying, I have no other ultimatum. We're going to starve here and all perish if I don't at least take this, in a sense, step of faith and just trust my circumstances to God. We're just going to all survive, uh, excuse me, all never going to survive the famine if we just keep digging our heels in. So at that point, chapter 43, verse 15, we pick up tonight. So the men took that present, read in the verses above, and also Benjamin, and they took double money in their hand, again, because they want to make restitution for what was never given as payment last time, some kind of a mix-up or an oversight, and they arose and they went back down to Egypt and they stood before Joseph the second time and they are probably shaking in their sandals thinking, oh man, you know, here we are again. This guy's going to say, hey, aren't you, wait, not only are you guys spies, you never paid your debts and, and we're short money. And, and they're thinking, oh my goodness. So they go and they stand before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, again, remember, it's the first time. 20 years, he now sees his one true biological brother, and by that I mean the, the one brother out of his, 
you know, 11 siblings, uh, 11 brothers, excuse me, that he shared both mother and father with. Both of them had the Rachel as their mother. You can imagine the emotions that flooded his soul. He sees his younger brother, Benjamin. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready for these men will dine with me at noon. And then the men, verse 17, did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. So Joseph has made arrangements. He sees them coming back. Again, he's got a plan. In this whole process, as we said before last time, Joseph wants to reveal himself. But it's a progressive revelation. He's wanting to see where their hearts are at. He's wanting to get their hearts in the right position, the right place. There's a sin issue that needs to be dealt with. There's some repentance that needs to take place. Uh, and it's just a matter of timing. He's not trying to be cruel with them. He's just, and I think God's leading him. And Joseph was a man who sought God. We know he had a very close relationship with God. And I think God's directing him through this. You know, some commentators try to say, well, Joseph was kind of just trying to get back at him a little bit. I don't believe that. We look at the earlier part of Joseph's life. The Bible is very explicit that this man had a real connection with God. He loved the Lord. He was obedient to God. He never got bitter in his circumstances. God's hand was upon his life. God gave him interpretation of dreams. So I think he's praying and told, Lord, what do I do? You know, here's my brothers. And we see multiple times he's having to restrain himself in emotion because he wants so badly to enter into a relationship with, to reveal himself. It's me. It's Joseph. That's what he ultimately does. And to reconcile. But he's following God's timetable. And again, as I said, I think much of it is a very beautiful picture of kind of what happens with Jesus. You know, that Jesus, you know, he wants to reveal himself to all of us. He wants to reconcile with us and, and remove the sin from us and help us to be reconciled to God the Father. But I found in my life and I see in the lives of others that, that, that God, God's never in a hurry. Even, and this is going to sound shocking, even in relation to people's salvation. God's never in a hurry. Because God knows the right way and the right time to save people. And God wants a genuine conversion. God would much rather have a genuine conversion that came from true contrition in a person's heart, from genuine conviction of the Holy Spirit, which is an essential part of salvation for a person to realize they're a sinner, to realize they need to repent, that they are a guilty, reprobate sinner before a holy God that deserves damnation and hell, and that they need Jesus Christ to say, God would much rather a person be in that right place and have a genuine conversion than somebody just raise their hand in a meeting because it sounds like, oh, well, that sounds like a pretty good offer. Okay, I'll, you know, and, and, and yeah, I'll take the Jesus thing. I'll live like hell tomorrow, but I'll take the Jesus thing today. That's, yeah. God would much rather have a genuine conversion than a hand raise in a service or come forward in an emotional moment and, and, and have a false assurance and truly not have a spiritual conversion. God is able to save. He's created the perfect plan, and God's the one who saves, and, and God orchestrates these things in his way in time. And, and because of that, there's kind of, I think, many times, a progressive process whereby God reveals himself to where ultimately, when we'll see Joseph, when he finally reveals himself to his brothers, he just says three words, and the thing happens. He just says, I am Joseph. And it reminds me of how ultimately, when Jesus saved me and when he saved you, he just, it got real simple at the end. He got your heart prepared to that place where he just said to you, I am Jesus. And, and, and when you realized it was Jesus and, and you knew what that meant in your own heart language, salvation, submission, surrender, 
your Lord. And, and, and we, and, and there, but there's a process that goes along with this. And Joseph is kind of, it seems, again, I think in many ways a picture of that, but he's taking them through this process here. So he now arranges another step in this process with his brothers, trying to reveal himself, testing their hearts and so forth. He makes an arrangement for them to dine with him. It says here in verse 16 and 17, he has a servant go prepare a meal to eat with him in his palace quarters to get a nice feast ready. Verse 18 says, now the men, that's Joseph's brothers, notice, they were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house and they said, it's because of the money. (laughs) Now, I want you to take notice of this. Joseph is wanting to have a meal for them. He's going to bless them with this nice feast and, and spend time with them. And he really just wants to be gracious to them. And he's going to be kind to them and spend time with them. But yet their interpretation, again, because of their own guilty conscience and because they don't truly know Joseph, is they think that really Joseph has ill intention towards them. They think Joseph's going to do something bad to them. They think, oh, he's going to just take us in and he's just going to, okay, come over, come over to the palace. Why? Because we're going to slap the cuffs on you and throw you down in the dungeon right away. And they're thinking... Everything, as far as their interaction with Joseph, that he's got bad intentions for them. He's going to really take them and ruin their life. And and the exact opposite is true. Because they don't know Joseph, and they have a guilty conscience, they have a wrong impression, and they evaluate things incorrectly. And I find many times that can be the case with people with the Lord. When people really don't know Jesus for who he is, and and they they have a guilty conscience, they kind of they misconstrue God's plan and intention for their life. And a lot of times here, God's wanting to bless them and do good and wonderful things in their life and show grace to them. And they're thinking, oh, no, the Lord must be out to get me. There's some trick up his sleeve. There's this, uh, I don't know, that salvation thing. He's probably going to bait and switch on me. You know, okay, you accept me. And then as soon as you know, that's it, I'm going to really mess up your life. And and I've talked to people. And people are almost like they're intimidated to accept Jesus as if somehow accepting Jesus, the Lord's going to pull some bait and switch and then he's going to really shackle them into something and lock them up and get them in the holy dungeon of God and really make them miserable and you know send them to some African mission place where the mosquitoes are going to eat them and they're going to live in a tin hut. And, and, and right, people, don't think they have that perspective. Why? Because they don't know the Lord. They don't know Jesus. Just like these guys, they didn't know Joseph for who he was, and they didn't understand, and they're guilty. So, so they're afraid. Joseph's got good intentions, but they're terrified. It's because of the money. That's what this is, which was returned, verse 18, in our sacks the first time. That's it. He's making a plan to put the shackles on and arrest us. It's because of the money put in our sacks that we brought in so that he may make a case, notice, against us and seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. So that's their understanding of what's about to happen. And when they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house. So they do what any sensible person would do. They think, you know what, man, we need an advocate because we're in big trouble. So maybe we can get somebody that's got an in with Joseph. And basically, beginning there in verse 20, oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time, and they start recounting their story. What are they doing? They're saying, you know, we need to find an advocate who can talk to Joseph for us, who can get us out of trouble. So maybe if we find a mediator to help us with Joseph, then we can get ourselves out of our problem and get released from our situation. And and they're looking for somebody to advocate with Joseph on their behalf. And don't people do that a lot too? Instead of just dealing with Jesus directly, 
they know that you have a connection with Jesus. Hey, can you can you launch a few? Can you throw a few up for me, brother? Can you can you send a few? Because you got a connection with Jesus, and I I, I need an in track here. And, and the Lord's got nothing good for me, but He seems like He likes you, or you have a connection. So since you have the inside track, would you kind of talk to Him on my behalf and, instead of realizing that there's one God, one meter between God and man? It's the man Christ Jesus, and we can go directly to Jesus. He's the Savior. And we can have direct, it's with him we need to have direct dialogue. So, again, they begin to talk to the steward now. Again, they're nervous. They're shaking in their sandals as they're going to this supposed dinner arrangement. Oh, sir, they say, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. Here's our story. But it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened up our sacks, and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack. Our money in full weight, so we have brought it back in our hand. We didn't, we didn't steal it, and we didn't even spend it. We brought back the money that was an oversight put into our sacks. And we have also brought down, verse 22, other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks, verse 23, his response. But he said, peace be with you, relax, be at rest. You're worried and anxious and think there's ill intention towards you. You're misinterpreting everything. Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God, imagine what that must have sounded like, that he's referring to Yahweh God. Again, they they were polytheists. They, They had many gods. And this servant, why? Because he knows Joseph who serves the one true God. He says, your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. And then he also brought Simeon out to them as well. So he says to them, listen, no, relax, no worries. You don't owe us any money. Yeah, we do. I don't know what you're talking about. Your God must have blessed you. Your, your God is the one who put treasure in your sacks. We have your money. You don't owe us anything. What, what do you mean? You, we have your money. Now, what exactly does that mean? What does that infer? Well, again, we can speculate. Truth be told, he technically did have their money initially, and then he did put it back in their sacks. So in one sense, look, we took it, but we put it back in your sacks. We returned it because we don't need it, and we wanted to bless you. So in one sense, he could be in the get. It's also possible, again, Joseph's the administrator and the authority over all this, Potentially, Joseph, again, wanting to bless, wanting to show grace to them. Joseph said, you know what? Put their money back in the sacks. He could have told his servant, you put all their money back in their sacks, and I'll pay all the debt for them. How much? Tabulate what it costs for all the grain they bought. I have treasures upon treasures upon treasures, way more treasures than they do. I'll pay their fee, give them all their money back. So in a sense, like a business transaction, the, the deal was still paid for. But Joseph said, you know what, instead of taking their money, I'll pay the whole bill for them, put all their money back in their sacks and send it home with them. And again, just a measure. Either way, it was a testimony of Joseph's desire to be gracious to them, to provide for them, to supply for them in a wonderful way. And I just, again, the language, your God, the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. And, you know, whenever the Lord... And he does it in such unique ways, isn't it? The ways in which he can channel his resources into our lives, it never ceases to amaze me. And all he wants us to know at the end of the day is, look, whether it ends up in your sack or it ends up in your stocks 
or whether it ends up in your in your in your 401k or in the way your bill situation works out or the extra in your paycheck or what or the check that shows up in your mailbox I mean, I've, I've seen it come from so many different ways i found god's not limited to his uh to, to his delivery systems but to realize that it's god who puts treasure into our sacks that the lord is able however he sees fit to be gracious through through whatever channels he chooses and this was the case here again joseph again a type of jesus uh, put treasure into their sacks and bless them. And then, so he says, look, no worry about the money. You owe us nothing. Don't be afraid. You don't owe us anything. And they also brought Simeon out. And this must have been blowing their minds. Here, Simeon released as a prisoner. They don't know any money. They're not accused as criminals or thieves for the business transaction. Verse 24, so the man brought the men into Joseph's house he gave them water and washed their feet, which was a gracious, customary action for house guests. And he gave their donkeys feed. I mean, they're being treated like royal guests. And then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand to the house and bowed down before him to the earth again this re repetitious fulfillment of joseph's dreams you know they tried to destroy his dreams but uh when god's given a dream and an intention it's going to happen and again here are people bowing down before joseph the brothers included verse 27 and then he asked them about their well-being again showing that he was concerned about them is your father well the old man of who you spoke is he still alive and they answered, your servant, our father, is in good health, and he is still alive. And they bowed their heads down, again, notice, and prostrated themselves. They're, they're humbling themselves before the authority and the rulership of Joseph. But again, here he is, a powerful ruler, a king, the second most powerful man in the world empire. They're bowing down before him. But again, with all that power and authority, verse 27, look at the tremendous care. He asked them about their well-being. And I like that. What, you know, to, again, to me, what a beautiful picture of Jesus. Here's Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. He's controlling everything in creation and in the universe, the creator God being worshipped around heaven's throne. And yet he actually, though so powerful, so much authority, every knee shall bow, every tongue should confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And yet that same Jesus condescends and it becomes so intimate and caring and he actually cares about your well-being. He actually cares about how you're doing and what your health is and, and wants to know how your family's doing. And, and just, you know, again, I, I love this incredible balance of Jesus, you know, this humble king, all power, all authority king, and yet he's so humble and so kind and intimately involved in our lives and cares about our everyday affairs and your personal well-being and your family situations and so forth and just gets involved on that intimate level in a personal way. And verse 29 says, Then they lifted uh, his eyes, and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and he said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said to him, notice, God be gracious to you, my son. In Joseph's words, again, God be gracious to you. Now his heart, notice, yearned, for his brother. So Joseph made haste 
and sought somewhere to weep, and he went into his chamber, and he wept there. So again, put yourself in Joseph's position here. He sees Benjamin, and all this is taking place, and he just becomes overwhelmed with emotion. This is the first of multiple times we see in this revelation process to his brothers. He just he becomes overcome with his own emotions, which shows you where his heart's at. It says, verse 30, he yearned for his brother. His heart, he yearned. He wanted so bad to just go over and embrace him and reveal himself. But there's this process going on. But there was no lack in his heart of desire to say, oh, I long to be in relationship with you. I long for you to know me and, and to have intimate fellowship with me. And again, I, I think of how if we you know, implant Jesus in there towards us and as a, Joseph as a type of Christ, how Jesus' heart yearns for us. He yearns for us. He's not just this you know, authoritative king and judge, but Jesus' heart yearns for us. That he longs to have a relationship with us. That he yearns to reveal himself to us. That we might know him to the point where literally at times he is overcome with grief. Again, we read of Jesus when he was coming into Jerusalem. Remember, it literally says that he did what? That he wept over the city of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. If you would have only realized. And he literally weeps over the city that he yearned for that city and those people, the Jews, to realize who he was, to see him for who he was and to have a relationship. And again, is Jesus wept. Here, Joseph, he's literally weeping because he can't wait. He longs to have a relationship. Amazing. What a tremendous testimony to see the heart of God towards people, to realize that's the heart of the Lord towards you and I. That's the heart of the Lord towards people who don't yet know him, that his heart is yearning to reveal himself to them, that he literally weeps over their souls. You know, would to God that I could say that my heart yearned for unconverted people and that I actually wept for unconverted people, that, you know, that Jesus, by his grace and spirit, would give you and I that kind of a heart. Lord, help us to yearn, to sense in our heart that yearning for souls, to sense in our heart that, you know, brokenheartedness where we would weep, literally be saddened over the person who doesn't yet know Jesus. And verse 31 says he then, after running back to his chamber privately to weep, to, to compose himself, he then washed his face. You know, again, they typically wore makeup, the Egyptians, the, the, the pictures, the, you know, black ink type, you know, mascara, eyeliner stuff that they would wear. So he's, you know, he's, he's putting himself back together, the idea. That's what the Hebrew indicates. You got to put yourself back together there. So he's regaining his composure. He's washing all the, you know, runny makeup off his face. And then he came back out and he restrained himself and said, <clears throat> serve the bread. <laughs> so he composes himself, though he's overwhelmed with emotion, because, again, he's prime minister. Serve the bread, he tells his servants. So they set him a place by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves. Here's the reason why, verse 32 adds, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is an abomination to Egyptians. So again, the reason for the segregation there in the tables is the Egyptians, quite honestly, historically, were truthfully, in that ancient culture, about one of the most racist civilizations that exist. They, history literally tells us of the Egyptians that they believe that everyone of Egyptian descent uh, had their origin from the gods and every other people who were not Egyptian descended from some lower origin. 
So again, and, and these were incredible people. If you look at the, you know, the architecture and the the structures and the things that these people built uh, without. Uh, again, you know, uh, laser levels and the mechanical, you know, construction capabilities that we have today and the things that we use to this day still. It's a marvel. I mean, these were intelligent, very superior people. Uh, but because of that, it seems it came as well with a tremendous arrogance that they had to where they had a superiority and sort of a racist attitude. So because of that, notice there was a separation. They literally would not eat with the Hebrews, uh, so there had to be separate tables during this feast where even Joseph sits by himself at his royal table. The Egyptians have another table, and his brothers, who are Hebrews, are eating elsewhere in the same, all in the same room, though. And they sat before him, verse 33. Notice, the firstborn, according to his birthright, and the youngest, according to his youth, and the men, his brothers, looked in astonishment at one another. So they sit down at the table, and it's assigned seating. And the way Joseph has had his servants prepare the assigned seating, again, he throws another little, uh, you know, his little pro he sits them down according to their birthright, from the oldest all the way down to the youngest from Benjamin. Now, uh, Henry Morris in his commentary uh, you know, one of these technical guys statistically said the chances, the mathematical chances of being able to to shoot for something like that randomly is something like close to one in 40 million. <laughs> Again, you have 11 brothers, multiple, when you factor 11 people times multiple different possibilities of random orders they could be in to get them in the exact perfect order just randomly by chance, one in 40 million. That's why the Hebrew says here they looked at each other in astonishment because they realized, what in the world? Something's, something's, how did that happen? How did this guy know how to do that? Again, Joseph's prompting their hearts. He's giving them little insights that he is at work in their lives. And, you know, again, as I think of Jesus, you know, doesn't the Lord, I, I look back in my life, doesn't he sometimes kind of do that? He, he, he finds these little subtle ways of intervening when he's knocking on the door of people's hearts and he's getting their attention where he does certain things to just get people to be, wow, just, how in the world did that happen that way? And what's he trying to indicate to them? I'm involved in your life. Can't you see I'm involved in your life? Even though you don't even recognize me yet, even though you haven't fully had a revelation of me and you, I'm involved in your life. And so he does little things to astonish us and to blow our minds and to begin to just, you know, show us things of his involvement and what he's doing. So here they are sitting now amazed at this dinner from the oldest to the youngest in the arrangement. And verse 34 says, and then he took servings to them from before him. But Benjamin, the youngest brother's servings, was five times as many as theirs. So they ate and drank and were merry with him. So as they're sitting there eating, oldest to youngest, Joseph arranges, as they're, and they're all being treated to like a feast here. So he's being gracious to all of them. They're already being laden with just bountiful grace being shown to them. But then here come the servants, and you know five extra platefuls keep coming to Benjamin with every course of the meal. And what's Joseph doing? Again, he's testing their hearts. Because what is he wanting to see? He's wanting to see if there's a reaction from the brothers of envy and jealousy and spite. What's up with giving uh, 
Junior here five extra lobster tails, you know, and, and he's wanting to see if there's going to be a reaction. Now, it seems that there's no reaction, which, again, is something Joseph's searching for to see where their hearts are at at this point. Because what was the problem with Joseph? They envied him, remember? They hated him and they despised him as the favored son, as the youngest one. They could not get over the fact that as the youngest, for some reason, God was exalting him. They could not get over the fact that God would bless and use Joseph instead of using them. So they had hate and envy and spite in their hearts. And it was their own heart condition. Their heart was wrong. They couldn't stand it. Hey, why would, of all people, why would he be elevated? We're so much older. We're so much more mature. We have so much more experience. Why would dad put him as the head over all the flocks and give him that fancy coat? And, and why is he being promoted? And, and so Joseph's saying, okay, let me see what this is like now. Benjamin's the youngest. Let me replay this. Let me see where they're at 20 years later. They still got a heart issue? Because sometimes it takes people 20 years. Sometimes it takes people 30 years. Sometimes I've met Christians who, quite honestly, they've been walking with the Lord for four years and they still act like an infant. You know, they still seem like they should be in the spiritual nursery. So he's wanting to see where they're at. And the wonderful thing is he does see progress because there seems to be no animosity, no envy. They just eat and drink and, and nobody makes mention. They're just thankful for their provisions. Nobody gets jealous or envious towards Benjamin, which shows. Joseph's saying, all oh, right, their hearts are changing. Their character has made progress. Verse 1 of 44, and he commanded the steward of his house saying, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Here's another test as he's sending them home. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, Benjamin, and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. So here's another plant now, <laughs> another test he's going to put them through as they're sending them back home now. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. And when they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, okay, now go. You got a little plan set up. Go, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is this not the one from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed practices divination? And you have done evil in so doing. So he overtook them and spoke to them these same words. So he sends forth the servant. He catches up with them. They're thinking, well, hmm, that's strange. Wonder." Maybe we forgot something. You know, we left behind our, you know, cell phone charger or something. Why is the servant coming over the hill? Things went so well. We had this great dinner. Everything was resolved. They didn't think we were spies or thieves anymore. We have Simeon with us. They sent Benjamin back, and the servant shows up. And as soon as he shows up, he's got a strange look on his face. The audacity of you Hebrews! That after all of that, you would show and repay evil for good and, and, and do such a thing that you would take our Lord's silver divination cup, the thing that he uses to find out oracles from the gods to be able to lead and administrate our Egyptian empire, the most prized possession in the entire prime minister's household that you would do. And, 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 and as he says those things, verse 7, they say, why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Again, the, the audacity. Why would you accuse us of such a thing? Look, verse 8, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. The idea is the first time. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? 
with whomever your servants it is found, let him die. Sometimes you say more than you should. You know what I mean? <laughs> now, again, they're, they're, they feel very validated. Look, we're honest guys. I can't believe you would think that we would do something like that. In fact, we are so certain that we are all men of integrity and honest and forthright in our character. If you find that thing in this place, you can kill somebody. Now, have you ever noticed sometimes when we try and justify and validate ourselves in certain situations, even maybe when we're right, sometimes we tend to say a little bit more than we should sometimes, and sometimes the more we say, the worse it becomes. The Bible tells us things in Proverbs like, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. The simple way of saying that is, the more you talk, the better chance you're going to sin that typically the more we say, the quicker we start saying things that we shouldn't have said. And it's a challenge for all of us. And here they are saying, hey, we wouldn't steal, but then they get real intense and, and, and they're so wanting to vindicate themselves. They say, just if you find, verse 9, one of your servants with that, let him die. And we, all of us, then we'll all be, you kill that person and we'll all become slaves. So they're, uh, offering quite a, a heavy uh, punishment. And he said, now also let it be according to your words. Okay, if that's, you've said it, and that's what we will do. With whom it is found, however, notice he tempers it back with tremendous mercy. Whoever I find the cup with, just he will be my slave, and the rest of you shall be guiltless. I don't want all of you, we don't want to kill anybody in bloodshed over this, and we don't want all of you to be slaves. Just the one person that's stolen it, I'm bringing him back as a slave. The rest of you can go guiltless. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack, and so he searched. And he began with the oldest and left off with the youngest, and the cup was found, oh my, in Benjamin's sack. And I can imagine as, again, he's going from oldest to youngest, that is, you know, typical human personalities here. As they're going through the oldest sack, and they finally go, yeah, show them yours. Yeah, you know, and we're, we're going all the way down, you know, that's three, four innocent, five innocent. And every time they're getting more, yeah, I can't believe this guy's saying this stuff. And they're getting more and more intensified in their sense of self-righteousness. And lo and behold, of all people, baby Ben, baby Benjamin, oh my goodness, the cup is in Benjamin's sack. Verse 13, they tore their clothes and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. Now, again, take notice. They could have said, Benjamin, you little blazing idiot. You know, what, are you, what are you doing? And if they were like they were with Joseph 20 years prior, they would have said, well, Ben, uh, we'll write you letters. Sorry. And they could have left him. They could have taken the freedom. Again, the empire of Egypt just gave them a guiltless opportunity to walk away from the situation. They could have let Benjamin be taken as a captive. They, that's what they would have done with Joseph years ago, and they could have gone free. But instead, it says what? Each man returned to the city. Shows you something's changed in their hearts. See, they're committed now. They're loyal. They're becoming more self-sacrificial. They have more of a, of a unified perspective where, hey, it's not just about Benjamin, it's not just about us, it's about all of us. 
Again, Philippians 2, we just studied recently. Let each man look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. We always look out for our own interests, the Bible's telling us. That's not hard. We, don't, we automatically, but the Bible's saying, look, not just your own interests. Grow up, mature, and look out for the interests of other people besides just yourself all the time. Consider other people in processes, not just yourself. And this is what the brothers do here. This is noble. This must have blessed Joseph's heart. He sees them all. He's expecting maybe Benjamin to come back, and he sees all 11 brothers coming back together willingly. And he's thinking, wow, this is, this is wonderful. Verse 14, so Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell down humbly before him on the ground. Joseph then said, what indeed is this you've done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Again, he's playing the part here of an Egyptian ruler. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves. We all surrender, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. So again, tremendous humility. Judah speaks forward sort of as the advocate on the family. And notice, again, not justification, not trying to rationalize, complete humility and submission. And, and again, notice verse 16, the tinge of, of the struggle with a guilty conscience still. Look what they say. Verse 16, Judah says, how shall we clear ourselves, not of the cup? He says, God has found out the iniquity, not of Benjamin, the iniquity of your servants, plural, our iniquity. What's that? Their sin of what they had done to Joseph 20 years ago, which we saw them struggling with a guilty conscience over in our study last time. The iniquity of your servants. What are the, what's he saying? Still, th th this problem, this misfortune, this bad thing that's just happened where now we've been accused again of stealing, this is still God getting us for what we did to Joseph 20 years ago when we sold him as a slave and we threw him down in the pit and we were careless and then we went back and for 20 years we've been lying to our father and lying to everyone and still to this day that guilty conscience is plaguing them again the plague of a guilty conscience you know unconfessed sin and a guilty conscience it is like a plague it's like a plague it torments people because they're interpreting this present misfortune as a punishment for something they did 20 years ago because their unconfessed sin and their guilt has not been dealt with in their lives that's why it is so important and so wonderful to come to jesus christ and to know that your sins are cleansed and forgiven and to have your guilt taken away it is the most marvelous therapeutic emotional psychological you know incredible thing to know oh i don't have to struggle with a guilty conscience it's gone it's washed it's clean it's forgiven because then when something difficult happens you don't always have to interpret it this yep that's what this is this is the punishment it's the punishment for that thing again for that thing i did five years ago this is st that's it this is the punishment again and when you have a guilty conscience that's how you interpret everything instead of just no things happen Life has problems and difficulties and trials, but you shouldn't interpret trials and problems and difficulties as the result of mistakes you made five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. That's not how God works. But a guilty conscience struggles with that. 
And here these brothers are feeling like that they just submit themselves. Here we are, we're all slaves. This is just God who's found out the iniquity of your servants. Verse 17, but he said, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, Joseph says, that's all I want. Just him, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Now, let me read verse 18, and I'm not going to comment on it much because a lot of it is just a reiteration of what the texts have told us in prior chapters. But this is Joseph now who speaks up in advocacy. Joseph says, look, I don't want all of you to be slaves. Again, you're free to go. All I want is the one guy who stole my cup. But Judah came near, and he speaks up as an intercessor, saying, Oh, my Lord, please, let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. Do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh, a man of great authority. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And he said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead. And he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. And then you said, referring to the first trip there, Well, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said back to you, uh, The lad can't leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. It would break his heart, and he'd be overwhelmed with concern. But you said, Unless your younger brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. Again, recounting what we studied last time. But our father said to us, go back and buy food. But we said, uh, dad, we cannot go down if our youngest brother is with us, not with us. Then we'll go, for we may not see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. And then your servant, our father, said, You know that my wife, that is Rachel, bore me two sons, and one went out from me. And I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, referring to Joseph, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, and his life is bound up in this lad's life, it will happen when he sees the lad is not with us, that my father, he says, literally, it'll kill him, he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead or in place of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? Perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. Now, again, Lengthy section, we read through it because basically he is just reiterating and articulating the historical narrative that we read in the prior chapters. Uh, but what is, is basically taking place here? Joseph has said, look, Benjamin's the one who stole the cup. You don't all have to stay as my slaves. You're all free to go. I just want the one person who's guilty of the violation. He will serve the punishment 
for his own crime. The rest of you may go free. You don't need to bear the punishment for his crime. That's not how it works around here. We're not going to punish you for somebody else's crimes. He needs to justly be punished because he committed the crime and stole my cup. The rest of you may go. Judah speaks up, in a sense, you could say, as an advocate and an intercessor. And he says, listen, and he recounts the whole story. And he shows that he has two things on his mind. One, he has tremendous concern for his father because he realizes if Benjamin gets left behind, it's going to break his father's heart. And he says, I can't bear to see my father's heart broken. It will kill my father with grief and sorrow if this happens. And he says, secondly, I'm asking if possible. He says towards the end of the section there, verse 33, he proposes, let your servant remain instead of the idea of Benjamin as a slave and let him go free with his brothers. His second proposal is this. Look, I can't let that happen to Benjamin, but I'll tell you what. Can I step into his place? Would you let me serve his punishment? Let me pay the penalty for his crime. You punish me as a substitute. I'll become your slave and stay in prison forever. And please let him go free, even though he's the guilty one. I'm willing as an innocent one to step into his place. You let him go free and I'll serve his punishment and his crime penalty for him. And again, consider this and what this is doing for Joseph's mind because... Who was the one, recall your memory, that recommended that they sell Joseph 20 years ago as a slave to the Ishmaelite traders? It was Judah. It was Judah. Judah, this one who 20 years ago was the, the one who spoke up and said, Hey, why don't we sell this dreamer off and go back and tell Dad some story and get rid of him? And, and this same Judah now... 20 years later, take notice, he's quite a different man. He's changed in 20 years. He, he has a different heart attitude. And you know, it's a beautiful thing to me because Joseph's seeing here, wow, Judah's changed. He's really changed. He's a different man 20 years ago than he was 20 years ago. And it's a tremendous indicator to you and I of something that, guess what? This is going to come as a shock. People can change. People who did wrong things in the past, hurtful things, who have failed you, failed others, hurt you, hurt others, done wrong things, people can change. Certainly, all the more with Jesus, people can change. Because if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. And sometimes, even Christians who make mistakes, they can change. Because people can repent. People can learn lessons. They can realize the mistakes and the failures they made. And by the grace of God... People can be different, and we need to remember that. We need to be open to that. We need to give the freedom and opportunity for, at times, God to show us. And I'm not saying we should be foolish, but maybe somebody did something really wrong 20 years ago or 20 months ago. But it doesn't mean they can't change. God can change people. Judah actually changed. He became a different man. He's showing humility. He actually cares about his father's uh, heart, you know, now, before he didn't care that he broke his father's heart, but now he cares about his father. He doesn't want to break his father's heart. He's concerned about what would be best for his, his father and pleasing his father. And he's now self-sacrificial. He's saying, look, you know what? 
I'll actually step into his place. He's got a completely revolutionized attitude and heart condition. And to me, how wonderful to see that God can do that. God can change people. Hasn't he changed a lot of us? Think, you know, think of who you were 20 years ago or maybe 20 months ago. If we're willing to accept the fact that the Lord can change us, and I want him to change, certainly we should be willing to extend the grace and to give the opportunity. I'm not, again, I'm not saying be foolish. Joseph's testing them. There's a balance in this. He's testing them. He's observing to see, let me see if you've changed. So again, I'm, I'm, Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine. I'm not saying we should be foolish in, in relationships. Again, Joseph's patiently seeing, but he's giving the opportunity to test the fruit a little bit. Let me see if you're the same person. Let me see if you've changed. But if you see the validation they've changed, then accept it. Don't hold them under your thumb forever. Or don't say forever, oh, well, you're just still the same old person. Because that, that may not be true. Because people can change. Secondarily, please see how Judah here, not Joseph, Judah here, becomes a tremendous type, of, again, of who? Of Jesus. As an intercessor, he's interceding for his guilty brother. And he is saying, you know what? Instead of him being punished, though he's the guilty one, and I didn't do it, he's the guilty one, he says, let your servant remain instead of the lad. Let me be punished instead of him. Isn't that exactly what Jesus does for us? He's our intercessor. And Jesus, who is innocent, he's the righteous, sinless one. That's exactly what he does. Jesus steps in as our substitute and he says, you know what? Even though I'm innocent, you're guilty. Here's the way I want to do it. Father, punish me for Tony's guilt. For everything, I know he's the guilty one and I'm the innocent one, but instead of him being punished for his sins, I'll take the punishment for his sins. I'll take the, the, the guilt upon myself and serve the penalty for the crime and let him go free. It's exactly what Jesus does for us. Judah becomes a beautiful picture of Jesus here stepping in in a substitutionary way for us. Again, 1 John 3.16 says to us there, you know, by this we know love that, that Jesus laid down his life for us. And then it goes on to say, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. That we should emulate exactly what Jesus has demonstrated. Well, verse 1 of 45 says, Then Joseph could not restrain himself. And guess what he's about to do? Their hearts are ready now. Their hearts are ready because they've shown humility, confession. Uh, their hearts are ready for revelation. And he's, he, he's, again, he can't wait to reveal himself. And Jesus can't wait to see our unsaved loved ones get saved. You, you think you're anxious. <laughs> Lord, when are they going to get saved? I just, there's got to be a different way. That four spiritual law thing, I must need a fifth spiritual law or something. Or There's just one verse I haven't quoted that. One, and, and we can't, uh, Jesus can't wait to reveal himself. And all Joseph's going to say is three words, I am Joseph. That relationship is instantly, instantly there in the moment. Just like with Saul of Tarsus. Again, rebel, and it's a beautiful picture. We'll see next. He says to Saul of Tarsus, I am Jesus. And instantly, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. And again, we're going to have to... Wait till next time. So we'll, we'll, to be continued, leave you on the cliffhanger because we're we're out of time. But we'll see the revelation of Joseph next time together. Father, thank you for time tonight to study the Bible together, to 
to worship, to let you speak into our hearts through your word that you've spoken. And Lord, we ask that what we have sown into our hearts, the seed would just fall upon good soil and that you, by your Spirit's ministry, Lord, taking the the fertile soil and the good seed that's alive, would bring fruit in our lives, Lord, 30, 60, 100-fold, that, Lord, we live fruitful lives because of the truth of your word being deposited in our hearts tonight. We love you, Lord, and we ask you to help us to walk in those things that you've spoken to us about. We pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen.